Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. We're here with our guest, David French, who is a New York Times bestselling author, a long career as a religious liberty defending attorney, a graduate of Harvard Law School, uh, columnist for Time, senior editor of the Dispatch. David, I'm sure there are a whole host of things we could <laughs> we could add to that. Um, but uh, you know, I, w- I want to I want to spend our time today on a on a, what I think has become a, a, a not only an academic subject but also a significant cultural one, and that is with all the with all the discussions about race that have emerged in the summer of 2020. Uh, a, a philosophy undergirding our discussions has become sort of pub, more public knowledge and the right. notion of critical race theory. Right. Could you tell us a little bit? I mean, you've done a lot of thinking about this. You've been, you've been, you've been working with critical race theory in one form or another for roughly 30 years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I know ranging back from your time as a law student. Um, but why do you think the discussion of this has catapulted onto the public scene today, sort of come out of the academic shadows and into the public consciousness yeah. much more widely today? Well, I think, um, yeah, you're right. I was essentially taught law by critical race theorists. The, the vast majority of the professors that I learned law from were critical race theorists um, or critical theorists of some kind, gender, uh, sexuality, etc. But I think the reason is that um, at, in the aftermath of the George Floyd killing, there was a massive national, unlike almost anything I've seen in my life, um, almost like a, a convulsive, a, na- a national convulsion uh, and, and a re- of, of revulsion and anger at what happened in Minneapolis. It was, it was, a, it was brutality that just shocked the conscience, just shocked the conscience. And so for, a, for the first time, for, for some people in their lives, for a lot of people in a long time, they began to sort of turn to each other and say, what is it we can do about this? What, what is wrong with us? What is wrong with this country? What is wrong? Why do, why do these things still happen? And 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 it also happened. The George Floyd killing happened right on the heels of this awful murder of Ahmad Arbery in Georgia. The killing of Breonna Taylor in Louisville, and and as people were pent up in the pandemic, frankly, and so there was this huge outcry, unlike anything that I have seen. And what's the old statement? Nature abhors a vacuum. So, uh, if people are saying, "Tell us about." What's happening? Tell us why. Well, there's this entire literature of critical race theory that, and, you know, books, How to Be Anti-Racist, White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, a lot of literature that was out there in the academic world, sort of in the corporate diversity world, was there and just flooded in to the gap. It just flooded in just as there was this, you know, outcry, tell us, we need to know, what can we do? I think it was one of the these situations where it's sort of like idea met moment, and there weren't as many other voices, quite frankly. Um, you know, there weren't as many um, thoughtful, theologically conservative Christian voices, although there are they are out there. But as far as like reaching that mass pop culture level, they just didn't do it, and so you had these ideas that have been around 
They've been widely accepted in the academy for decades, and there's nothing new about them. Widely accepted in a lot of more progressive corporate world for decades. But then in this mass pop culture level, those, those were the ideas that were ready to meet the moment. They were sort of like, dust them off the shelf, boom, here you go. Here it is. Here's the explanation. And so it just took off to the point where I think I've had more critical race theory conversations, even though I've been dealing with critical race theory to some degree or another for almost 30 years. I've had more critical race theory conversations in the last six months than probably the last six years combined. But it's also provoked quite a reaction to oh, yeah. what, what is it about critical race theory that has provoked the reaction that it did uh, you know, across the country? Well, I mean, one, <laughs> there's a lot of reasons why it provoked a reaction. Um, it is essentially what critical race theory, they're, they're, here, let's define it briefly, okay? And I'll, I'll read a part of a de- definition from the UCLA, UCLA School of Public Affairs. CRT, critical race theory, recognizes that racism is ingrained in the fabric and system of the American society. Okay, already there, you're going to be controversial. The individual racist need not exist to note that institutional racism is pervasive in the dominant culture. This is the analytical lens that CRT uses in examining existing power structures. CRT identifies these power structures are based on white privilege and white supremacy, which perpetuates the marginalization of people of color. CRT also rejects, this is another one, CRT also rejects the traditions of liberalism and meritocracy. Now, when it's talking about liberalism, it's not talking about liberal conservative in a political sense. They're not talking about leftism. Right. They're talking about classical liberalism, the principles of the American, the liberty-based principles of the American founding. Um. Legal discourse says that the law is neutral and colorblind. However, CRT challenges this legal truth in scare quotes by examining liberalism and meritocracy as a vehicle for self-interest, power, and privilege. You read that definition, you know why it's controversial. So essentially what it's saying is this culture is just racism is in its DNA and that it's in its DNA to such an extent that even the principles of the American founding are suspect. Okay, so – that's why it's quite controversial. And now, that doesn't mean that there aren't elements of critical race theory that are useful for analyzing the American, our American society. So spell, spell that out a little bit further. What, how, how is that so? Uh, because I think some of the critics of critical race theory want to throw out everything. Yeah. So yeah. what critical race theory does that is actually – helpful and can be helpful is it takes it will it will take ask you to look at um, any given situation in society and deconstruct it in terms of power and privilege who has power and why and has that power provided them with privilege certain kinds of privilege and you think what what are you talking about because i don't quite follow um i'll give you an example i wrote about this example and i think it's a really Good example of how critical race theory and breaking down power and privilege can help us understand how power creates privilege and privilege can perpetuate injustice. Um, all right. So I used to, before I became a journalist full time, I was a lawyer and I used to advise a lot of Christian schools, colleges, um, you know, high schools. 
And there's a Christian high school uh, in in a town in the South that was offered a free sheriff's deputy as a school resource officer after one of the terrible school shootings recently, Parkland, I believe. And initially the board was like, yeah, let's have that officer. Why not? And the headmaster spoke up and he said, well, let's rethink this because if we have a police officer in the schools that if somebody is caught with marijuana, as people had been, it's a law enforcement issue. It's not just a discipline issue between parent and headmaster where we try to set you know, the kid on the right course biblically. They might be processed through juvenile court. Or if there's a fight, it's not just a fight that we deal with between parents and headmaster who's also a pastor. It becomes a, a criminal justice issue, potentially an assault. And do we want to criminalize our school discipline? At that point, you know, members of the board, some of whom had kids who'd been in fights or had gotten in trouble, you know what, we'll pass, we, you know, we'll handle our own business. And that was the right decision. I, I think there was absolutely the right decision, totally the right decision. And nobody in that room mentioned one thing about race. But you know what that did is it was a product of power that created a privilege that perpetuated an injustice. And you got what, how? Okay, let's break it down. The public school down the street has school resource officers. The public school down the street is disproportionately black. The parents did not have, and there was no distinct school board for that particular school. There's just one school board. The parents didn't have the power to say no to a school resource officer. Here's the, here's the police officer in the halls. They didn't have that power. Those of us who had the wealth and the power to create our own independent school had, that, had the ability to say no. Now, what privilege was created by that power to say no. We'll call it a criming privilege so that unlike the students at the school down the street, our students had the ability to commit a host of petty crimes or even somewhat, you know, what the law like assault would consider something even more less, more than petty and not processed through the criminal justice system. And then whereas Students at this other school would do the same things and be processed through the criminal justice system, which let's just put it, frankly, the criminal justice system is not designed to as a character formation vehicle. Um, and so right there, you then begin to see how the outcomes for the students can start to diverge from these decisions that are based in, in power that create privileges and, you know, I wrote that and people said, wait a minute, what you're talking about is a difference in wealth. It's not a race difference. Well, why do these historical wealth differences exist? Why do they exist? Why is it that the average white family has a household wealth far greater than the average black family? I mean, there are complicated answers, but a, one of the key answers is that is rooted in the legacy of 345 years of institutionalized by uh, law, violently protected racism. And, and so then you begin to see how and why some divisions exist and are perpetuated. So that's helpful. That's helpful. It helps us understand the world around us. But then when critical race theory starts to pres- get prescriptive rather than descriptive, in my view, it goes off the rails in some pretty serious ways, both philosophically as a matter of political philosophy and as a matter of theology. So let's talk a little bit about that, not, not only from a, a biblical, theological perspective. We'll get to that in just a moment. But uh, it, would, that, would you say that 
when it moves from descriptive to prescriptive, that's when it really starts to trouble you? Yeah, I'm not saying it's uh, always right descriptively either. Um, there, For example, one, one, one famous critical race theory informed piece of journalism is the 1619 Project from New York Times. Um, I think one of the flaws of critical race theory is it often over-interprets history through the lens of race. But it still can be a helpful tool to interpret history in, in our present reality. But when it gets prescriptive is when I, I feel like it really has a problem. And we'll, we'll talk political philosophy first. Okay. Hold, hold that thought for just a sure. second. Because I think some, some of the things that I think people have commented on you know, over the summer of 2020 is that the, the use of critical race theory has sort of morphed from being – useful descriptive tools into more of a, a more more of a worldview more of a, 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 a totalizing ideology yeah. for understanding you know virtually everything yeah. in the culture and i take it that's where you say it starts to run yeah. off the rails critical race theory is some sort of all encompassing uh, all encompassing explanation for every important phenomenon within the united states is where it goes significantly off the rails and and i think the 1619 project as originally published, was a prime example of that because um, the New York Times took something that is true, which is we do not sufficiently discuss 1619, which is the, the year in which the first African slaves were brought to American shores. We do not adequately discuss the implications on our nation and culture of that moment. That's, I believe that's true. And they turned it into something well beyond that, which is uh, 1619 became, quote unquote, the true founding of the United States of America, which is, it is not. It is not. In fact, the way I put it in an, uh, a piece in the dispatch, what 1619 signified really was that the new, this new civilization being built on the eastern seaboard of the North American continent was more of the same, was more of the same exploitation more of the same violence, more of the same injustice that had plagued humankind since the fall. 1776, however, was something new. It was an aspiration to an ideal, and we know that the founders didn't live up that ideal, but they articulated an aspiration, and that that's the true founding of the American civilization, uh, or the, the, the American nation, and what American history has been, to a large extent, has been a war between 1619 and 1776, between the, the awful reality of fallen man in 1619 versus the aspirational hope of the founders and those who sought to perpetuate and extend the principles of the American founding since 1776. And, and so, what so one of the things that's so toxic about political race theory is that politi- uh, critical race theory is that critical race theory rejects 1776. But when the principles of 1776, especially as articulated in the Bill of Rights and amplified in the Civil War amendments, have been indispensable, have been indispensable to extending American liberty to an ever-enlarged, ever-growing circle of people. And so that's where I think you have a real flaw is this idea that says – that these aspirational principles of 1776, which contradicted 1619, are somehow the problem when the, in actuality there's, they're the solution. It's just been long and hard and painful 
to implement that solution. Yeah, I think, I mean, you use in your, in your piece on critical race theory that I, that we, I read recently in the dispatch, um, you use the imagery of, of when critical race theory moves to the, the, the prescriptive element that, uh, you know, to do, do sort of doing away with liberal democracy and meritocracy and, and market systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you describe that as sort of, you know, tearing down the king's house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that imagery, I think, is really helpful because you, you suggest that the founding principles of 70, 1776 actually function really differently mm-hmm. to, in, to enlarge the house, to include others that, that were, were not, that have historically not been included. Tell us a little bit about the, yeah. the origin of that imagery and, there's and, a, and why it's so effective. There's a saying that I heard uh, going back to 1991 when I got to law school and first was exposed. I wouldn't say exposed to critical race theory, uh, marinated <laughs> in critical race theory at, at, at law school. Um, you can't just, you don't destroy the master's house with the master's tools. And, and so, and essentially what that's saying is the, the master's house was this oppressive structure of the United States of America and the master's tools were the instruments of classical liberalism. And my argument is you expand the master's house with the master's tools. In other words, you use cl- the principles and the aspirations of classical liberalism to enlarge um, the in, enlarge the home of American democracy and pluralism, and in fact, that's what um, you know. Many of the great abolitionists and civil rights leaders of our time, in in times before, did. So, Frederick Douglass, for example, was a fierce champion of free speech. He called free speech the great moral renovator of society and government, and free speech is one of the foundational liberties of a classical liberal society. Um, His argument was that free speech was the dread of tyrants. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. talked about a promissory note that essentially what the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were, were a promise. And now uh, black Americans had come forward to cash in on that promise. And so if you look time and time again, as American liberty has spread, American justice has spread as well. And that American injustice has flowed from the lack of liberty. Um, you know, the greatest injustice is in American history. I mean, think of, of slavery. Slavery represented the total deprivation of liberty. The total deprivation. And even after slavery was abolished and Jim, when Jim Crow came crushing down on black Americans in the South, they suffered widespread deprivation of liberty. And it, it is that it is the the extension of these liberal, small l liberal virtues um, that have really helped bring uh, a measure of justice to American society. Yeah, which makes which I, th- I think suggests that the the phrase in our Pledge of Allegiance with liberty and justice for right. all was designed to go to, to go together, not 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 contrasting. Well, in many ways. Justice flows from free speech. I, I, I was talking to um, Reverend Walter Fontroy many years ago. He's one of the founders of the Congressional Black Caucus and was a civil rights leader. And I asked him to what did he attribute this real incredible, remarkable um, rise of legal protections against discrimination that began with Brown versus Board of Education and culminated in the Civil Rights Acts, which, you know, you had 
300 plus years of bylaw racial discrimination swept away in you know a decade plus of legislative and constitutional reform and he said it was two things he said as almighty god in the first amendment that the first amendment gave us the opportunity to speak and almighty god softened men's hearts to hear our message and so that justice flowed from the speech so let david let's take uh critical race theory, not just as analytical tools, but more as this to- totalizing ideology. Yeah. What, what are, what's your assessment of that? Or maybe, the, maybe uh, before we get to that, what are, for, the, for the average person among our listeners who, who probably is not super familiar with the CRT literature, um, what are some of the things that would, would give away uh, or would indicate that critical race theory has has become this totalizing ideology what are what are, what would you say are some of the identifying marks of that as a as a, an overarching ideology well i think one of the things that really bothers me ultimately about it is how much it centers around your race or ethnic identity how much it centers you around that identity now which is a little bit ironic because there are many critical race theorists who argue that race is a social construct that in essence, and, and with a lot of validity, by the way, that, that like this sort of this concept of people perceiving themselves as white is a relatively new, uh, relatively new thing. But they argue sort of simultaneously that race is a social construct, but also that once constructed, this construct becomes sort of a centering identity. It's a it it's a, it, it's at the essence, at the heart of who you are. And one of the things about, for example, this doctrine of intersectionality. Uh, it takes sort of a common sense approach that says, hey, wait a minute, as a general rule, black men experience the culture a little bit differently than black women, than gay men, than, you know, Hispanic men and women. And but again, centers this are centers you around this identity. Uh, it's sort of the the origin of, you know, the idea of identity politics centers you around this identity and and everything then, then begins to flow from this racial or ethnic or sexual identity that that's that's the centering aspect of your existence well that's contrary to a biblical uh idea that says the center of our identity is in christ there's no jew no greek no slave no free no male no female we're all one that doesn't mean that in a fallen world these categories like white or black um republican or democrat or whatever why but let's stick with race white or black that they don't have a consequence, that they don't have a meaning. But what it does mean is in under Christ, they are submitted to Christ, that our central identity is located in, in Christ for all of us. And so that's where I have a real problem with a lot of aspects of critical race theory that center your identity in your ethnicity, whereas in Christianity, you're centering your identity in Christ. Now, there are a lot of Christians who've taken that to say, well, then we shouldn't, we're paying too much attention to race if we're centering our identity in Christ. Well, if race is the source of injustice, if the fallen world is centering identity around race, we, we need to ameliorate, we need to deal with the effects of that injustice. But ultimately, we're centering our identity in Christ. And so that's, you know, that's one of the things that um, I find deeply problematic, uh, especially as people adopt sort of a CRT worldview 
as a fundamental mindset, as sort of the lens, the prism through which they view life. And and they'll often what you'll often see at some of the extreme edges of it is is they will not divorce ideas, experiences, attitudes, ideology from the 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 race or gender of the uh, of the um, uh, the, the, the origin that they will not divorce the ideology from the race or gender of the speaker. Um, they will not deal with an idea idea at you know independently of the race or gender of the speaker. And I think that begins to get really problematic. Yeah, which which I think suggests that you know you're either more qualified or disqualified to give an opinion based on whether you have the the, the race that uh, that the person desires to see. Yeah, so what you see in often in, in uh, critical race theory is a um, emphasis on what's called experiential authority. So, but experience is often not rooted in what we would typically call, the experience is derived from the identity. Okay, so if you're talking about police reform and you have a uh, African-American man who maybe hasn't had a lot of interaction with the police and you've got a white guy who's had a lot of interaction with the police, um, a critical race theorist is going to default to wanting to hear from the black man before wanting to hear from the white man, even if the white man has had some very concrete experiences to bring to bear because the identity gives the experiential authority, um, which again, I think is deeply problematic. Now, that doesn't mean that you sit that that there aren't experiences that often flow from identity. You know, so for example, Tim Scott, uh, black senator from South, Republican senator from South Carolina, one of the more po- powerful people in the United States, has had encounters with the police that I would never have. And so he has some experiential authority in how even a very powerful man, uh, a very powerful black American, is going to be made to feel powerless because of the color of their skin in in multiple instances throughout his life. And that is, we need to hear that. We need to hear that. But at the same time, the fact that he's had this experience doesn't mean that his opinion on the merits of qualified immunity as uh, a protection mechanism for the police are more valid than, say, for example, my opinion on the merits of qualified immunity, which is... Uh, and so that's where that's where sometimes you'll begin to see some of this experiential authority break down. Yeah. Is it is it too simplistic just to, to reply to that, to simply say that, you know, arguments don't have skin color? <laughs> well, I would say ex- that's I'm not going to go that far. I'm going to say ex- a lot of experiences have skin color. And so that arguments based on those experiences uh, have are are absolutely imperative to hear, but I would also say that there are, are profound limits to that approach. Um, you know, for example, uh, a lot of, a lot, I think these experiences are very important to inform arguments. They don't end arguments is maybe a way of saying I, it. I think that that's a helpful clarification of that, I think. I know some, I know other, a couple other things I think that trouble folks who have who've reacted to the prevalence of critical race theory as more of an ideology in the culture is that the tendency to see the world through the lenses of oppressor and oppressed, mm-hmm. uh, and without without nuancing that. Uh, and, but then I think on the other hand, you know, our, theologically our doctrine of sin 
certainly suggests that both individuals as well as institutions can be infected by sin. Right. Uh, and just because you have you have depraved sinners who are writing laws and creating institutions, that we shouldn't be surprised that our institutions also reflect some of those sinful tendencies. Oh, absolutely. And this is where I talk about that you know that difference between how you can have uh, how critical race theory can help you actually diagnose not just the existence of sin, but the effects of sin and how those effects can linger. And those effects can manifest themselves through people who are not, in fact, racist. And so I think one of the things about, as with any, any complicated theory, once things get boiled down into simple language, they often turn into big, blunt instruments. And, and so, you know, one of the things that people rebel against is this idea, if I'm sitting here and I'm not racist and my company is trying to uh, deal with the effects of racism— with affirmative action hiring, diversity training, et cetera, to then say that my company is part of systemic racism? What? Or I am? What? What are you talking about? And to the extent that I know any system at all, my, the system around me is trying to end racism. And that's where some of these buzzwords, I think, get really unhelpful. Um, because, you know, when somebody who's progressive talks about systemic racism, they often mean something than what conservatives hear when they hear those words, something different from what conservatives hear when they hear those words. And then phrases like white privilege, a lot of this stuff gets boiled down into this very blunt um, assessment of human beings where you can have somebody who's just struggling to make ends meet, who doesn't have a racist bone in their body, who's trying to raise their kids right, being feeling like other people are describing themselves as some sort of privileged oppressor. And it makes no sense just makes no sense and it feels like a personal attack. And so yeah, when you when when it, things are boiled down like that, it's really 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 unhelpful. Um but if you put it differently and you say that the way I, the way I've put it is that um we have had 345 years of racial discrimination enforced by violence in this country for 345 years, 1619 to 1964. We followed that up with 56 years of contentious change. There is no way that we have dealt with the consequences of the 345 years in the last 56. There's just no way. And so we need to think hard about how to deal with the consequences of those 345 years without then saying, because of who you are, mom and dad of three kids struggling to get to soccer practice on time and help your kids with your homework and, you know, that you're an oppressor, <laughs> that you're part of the problem. Instead, you say, we have a problem. We have a problem. How do we fix it? And, and I think there's a giant difference between those two yeah, positions. I think you've, you've described in your, in your piece in the dispatch that uh, the, the terrain you're staking out here is a hard slog. Yes, what, what makes it that way? Oh, I think what makes it that way, what makes it really hard is that, number one, it is a slog that puts you not really squarely within either political party, to be honest. So it means that if you're a Christian who is concerned uh, with some the, uh, the uh, who's concerned with the effects of that 345 years, um, often that means that, let's say you're a Christian Republican, often that means that you're going to be 
looking to people who are not on your side of the political aisle who've been thinking about this a lot more and a lot harder than some of the people who are on your side. That's uncomfortable these days. Our ideology, our, our political affiliation is so totalizing. It also means disagreeing with some people who get very heated, very heated. Both right and left are overcome with the political correctness around race. And some people would hear, who think that hear that would say, what? I understand that there's left-wing political correctness. Right-wing? What? Um, and I'd say it like this. On the left, you have a lot of uh, people who are over-racialize. They will over-racialize. On the right, you have a lot of people who are under-racialized. In fact, on the right, you'll often say, if, you're, if you say you are thinking about racial justice, the first thing you'll hear, and you'll get this online if you have any kind of public voice at all, are you getting woke? Are you a cultural Marxist? Are you critical race theorist now? Like the very idea that you would uh, begin to try to seriously engage on issues of race is seen as by some, some people on the, the edges of the right as, an, as a symptom of squishiness. And a I dangerous would, movement. There's two yeah. great examples of political correctness on the right and the left around race, gender, et cetera. On, on the left, I don't know if you remember the story of James Damore, the Google software engineer, kind of libertarianish guy. And Google asks its employees, hey, what are some ideas that we can do to increase gender diversity? And he comes up, he, he writes sort of a manifesto that says, hey, we need to understand why there is a gender disparity and that gender disparity is rooted in that women tend to not want to do this job as much as men. But here's how we can try to encourage more women to do this job without engaging in gender discrimination. It was, you know, some parts of it I agreed with, some parts I disagreed with, some parts I wasn't sure about, but it was written obviously in good faith. He was fired. He was fired. We can't have that in Google. People felt unsafe. He was fired. And then... Um, fast forward, you know, and right wing world said, look at all that political correctness. Look, look at that. They can't withstand dissent. They can't handle disagreement. You know, look at that political correctness. Then in 2017, Trump is campaigning in uh, for Roy Moore. <laughs> and he talks, calls out what kneeling football players who were engaging in quiet protest. They weren't hurting anybody. He says, fire them. And the conservative world said, no, we like free speech. No, that's sadly not what happened. They go, yeah, fire them. And I wonder, I wonder if Colin Kaepernick were kneeling to protest abortion, would, we, would American Christians have joined in the cheer to fire him? No, he's kneeling to protest police brutality and racial injustice. Um, and I think part of the political correctness on the right is that we – under-racialize. We look at, so we didn't even, it wasn't just that they didn't, they didn't like the form of the protest. It was also that they didn't like the substance of the protest at the same time. And that worked together to create an impulse to try to cancel these football players in the way that they, people on the right have objected to cancel culture in other contexts when applied to them. One final question on this, David. This has been really insightful stuff, and, and I appreciate your staking out this difficult terrain. But what, what would your message to the church be about critical race theory? You know, my, my message is be open to unorthodox sources of truth. <laughs> um, 
One of the things that we have a problem with, while also maintaining a firm and critical, uh, biblically informed worldview and reading reading uh, ideas through the prism of a biblical worldview. So, you know, there's this term common grace. And, you know, one of the operative words in the term common grace is common. means we can, there can be ideas of merit from a variety of sources. So what we have to do is we have to learn to stretch ourselves, to go outside of our comfort zones, to seek and find truth. We can't put it all on in our favorite pastors, our favorite Christian thinkers. They simply don't have the bandwidth to know everything about everything. Um, so here's what we often do. A big issue will come up and they'll say, I wonder what X thought of this. Well, there's probably a good chance that person X, Pastor X is scrambling going, oh, what should I think of this? <laughs> <laughs> um, so seek out scholars and seek out people who have thought about these issues for a long time, but always examine Truth claims in the light of Scripture. Always examine uh, truth claims in the light of history. It's hard. It's hard, but we should do it. Um, and then when things contradict biblical truth, you know, the, the, you don't advance it. You disagree with it. You articulate why you disagree with it. When something can help explain or inform the world around you or explain to you truth about the world around you, you embrace that truth. It's just really hard because— you know, we're just cocooning off into our respective bubbles. And so when a race issue comes up, a person who's a conservative, politically conservative Christian will immediately think, I wonder what conservatives think. What's the conservative perspective on this? And that's the perspective. And progressives will think, what's the progressive perspective? And that's the perspective. And, and we have to get past that. David, this has been really a very insightful discussion. So I so appreciate your coming on with us, and particularly the, as you describe it, this this difficult terrain that you're navigating on this still very, I think, very controversial, very highly charged emotional issue of critical race theory. But I so, I so appreciate the end part of that, where you know essentially you're suggesting that we think biblically about everything, right? Absolutely, Parti- particularly this. Absolutely. So. Thank you so much for being with us, and uh, you know all the best to the dispatch. Oh, uh, yes. I want to really encourage our listeners to uh, check out, uh, you know, your your thedispatch.com. Thank yes. you. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> um, and it's it's just a it's a wealth of really insightful material. So it's great stuff and well worth checking out. Oh, thanks so much for having me, and thanks for uh, the kind words about our work. This has been an episode of the podcast. Think biblically conversations on faith and culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, David French, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.